Welcome to Jesus Name News Podcast. I'm Larry. I got Derek here with me. And this week we're talking about the gap in the wall of the church and what we need to do to fill it to prevent the world from overtaking everything that we love. First, a word from our sponsors. Hey guys, thanks for listening to the Jesus Name News Podcast. Listen, if you like what you're hearing, if you want to continue getting this great content and you want to help support us, consider going to patreon.com slash Jesus Name News. You won't be sorry that you did. Thank you for listening. All right. So last week we talked about Nehemiah's sorrow and how God granted Nehemiah favor to do the work of rebuilding Jerusalem's defenses. But we take off this week discovering that Nehemiah has made his way to Jerusalem And in chapter two, he inspects these different areas of the wall and the gates to survey the damage. In verses nine and 10, we're introduced to two men. And in verse 17, Nehemiah addresses the people. And he has a peculiar encounter. So Nehemiah chapter two and verse 17, or verse nine, excuse me, says, then I came to the governors of the province beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. Now the king had sent me with officers of the army and horsemen, but when Sambalot the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant heard this, it displeased them greatly that someone had come to seek the welfare of the people of Israel. Skipping down to verse 17, because between you know verses 12 and 16 are about him serving the, the ruins of the wall and the gates. 17 says, Then I said to them, You see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision, which is like confusion or chaos. And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. But when Sembalat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite servant and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they jeered at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? Then I replied to them, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Now we've discussed the why of this opposition from these men already. And it was mostly about economics, and each of them recognized that should Jerusalem be rebuilt, that their respective cities and countries would be economically threatened by Judah. There was also some underlying hatred towards the Jews because the the land of Judah and and the lands the Jews conquered drove out the ancestors of guys like Tobiah. But who are they? Who is Sembalot, Tobiah? and Geshem. And they'll pop up over and over and over, and we'll add to their stories as we go through the book. But for now, we're just going to talk about some of the basics. So Sembalot, he was apparently a governor in Samaria. Yes, that's Samaria, where Jews of mixed blood dwelt in Jesus' time. His name means sin gives life, not to be confused with sin, like 
you know, sin, living in sin or something like that. But this is sin, the Sumerian moon god. Other interpretations do have it meaning Bramblebush or enemy in secret. And it's likely that Sembalot considered himself a follower of Yahweh. And the reason for this, I'll look at his son's names for evidence. This is what his son's name means. You have Deliah, the, which means the Lord has drawn up or delivered. And then you have Shelemiah, which means the Lord has required it. Further, his sons are asked by Jedaniah of Yeb, which is like Elephantine, uh, which is in Upper G- Egypt. Uh, also, the Jews of that region, they ask help of these sons to rebuild the Jewish temple at Elephantine. Do you want to hear something interesting? Yeah. So, I'm looking up sin. I'm interested. I, I mean, I, I ain't gonna lie. I'm like, I didn't realize sin was a deity. And then I'm thinking like Final Fantasy X, which I played back in the day, and that was a bad guy. And I was like, I wonder where it comes from. Like, I wonder what the myth is, right? <laughs> Check this out. Sin, um, also known as Nana in Sumerian, in Mesopotamian religion, is the god of the moon. Sin was the father of the sun god, Shamash. And in some myths of Ishtar, goddess of Venus, and with them formed the astral triad. It's just interesting that that this guy, Sambalat, is an ancient governor of a people who claimed to follow God but was actually named after the ancient triad of Sumer, of of the Mesopotamian deities, which is basically the root of all this other stuff that comes. Like, he's literally named after the, the primary god of that triad. That is interesting because, you know... And then claims to follow Yahweh. Which means that it's entirely possible that when Nehemiah got to Jerusalem, he came across a bunch of people that were descended from Jews that were following a version of Yahweh that they had mixed together with the pagan god and formed a trinity with. We'll get there. <laughs> Stepping all over my points. <laughs> I'm we'll sorry. The, Maybe uh, you should make your points so well that I hit your points while you're saying them. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, you're totally right. Like you didn't I mean, say that when exactly. your platform is so good. Yeah, I guess, you know, I, I got to give but, you props. Thanks. <laughs> so I do think it's interesting, though, that these Samaritan and Jewish clashes are popping up at this point. Again, because it just bleeds ever to light. We're getting some ethnic and historical context for what Jesus faced when he talked to Samaritans, right? And, you know, not only that, but like you said, that when the Jews came back, they did encounter a people of, of Samaria and of a people of Upper Egypt, you know, Elephantine. 
they encountered people that were mixing idol worship with, you know, worship of Yahweh. And, you know, that was a big deal. Because some of those Jews, one, were not put into exile. And two, some of those Jews were of the tribe. Of, I think it was, uh, was it Ephraim and Dan that stayed beyond the river? I can't remember. But some of them claimed to be part of that tribe. And then we move on to Tobiah. Tobiah is an Ammonite, and he may have been a secretary of Sembalot, or he could have been a community leader that was under a the satrap Sembalot. Uh, but his name, for whatever indicator, means the Lord is good and his wife is a Jew, right? And through marriage, Tobiah gained a lot of clout among the Jews and his son also gained some clout. So Geshem, or Gashmu, which is probably more accurate, he's an Arab. And actually, he's the only Arab that is mentioned in the Bible by name. He may have been actually a king in northern Arabia, uh, which is based on archaeological findings of a bowl uh, offered in a temple of an Arab goddess. And that bowl, uh, it's in the Brooklyn Museum, by the way. It's inscribed with what Quanu or Quanu, son of Gashem, king of Kedar, brought as offering to the goddess Han Ilat. So it dates back to the 5th century BC, which is about the time that we are looking at. So probably he really allied with Tobiah and Sambalot on economic dealings rather than historical or ethnic grounds. Probably didn't really have that ethnic issue going on. So we get to verse, I believe it was verse 17. And they tried to make their first attempt at uprooting Nehemiah. By insinuating that he's rebelling against the king, which they know full well that he's not because they've received the letters, which I've always, I found that odd. Like they're just trying to like rile Nehemiah up. Did and you look up Han a lot? I, I did, but it, I didn't think it was really that relevant, but sure. So I looked it up and they got redirected from Han a lot to Allah. Allah, yes. Which is literally the female form of Allah in the ancient world. Why am I unsurprised? I just, again, like these, it's crazy that they go back to Jerusalem and they're facing all of these things that are so directly parallel to what's happening around us. Yeah. In the modern world. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Uh, it, it, because this area of the world has been, you know, col- you know, when I say colonized, I don't mean like, you know, I mean like it's been inhabited, I guess is a better word. It's been inhabited for thousands upon thousands of years and there's been multiple major civilizations come from it. I mean, our the alphabet of all things, Phoenicia, that's where we have a basis for an alphabet. And, you know, yeah. So let that, it makes sense. 
that you would see a lot of these things bleed over, over and over and over. But it's just interesting how so many different cultures connect so directly and you can, you can almost connect the, the control of false religion from culture to culture as empires rise on top of each other and they just take on the they take on the forms of the prior empire to continue controlling the people with the same terms and the same ideas over and over and over and over and over again right uh i agree um but they do make their first attempt to uproot Nehemiah. And again, uh, I don't understand what they were doing. I guess they were just trying to get him riled up and make him make a mistake with his words or whatever. But Nehemiah, and I think that this is interesting because we were talking about like rights and claims and all of that. It says, the God of heaven will make us prosper and we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. Which again, today, a lot of the fight is over Jerusalem. And I find that interesting that Nehemiah is like, look, you're coming against this and you have no claim to it. You have no right to it. And he's telling them that God has designated the work and they're not going to be able to stop it. And then when he, when it does get complete, they will not have any right to any economic, social, political, or historical gain from. Because when you oppose the work of God, you're on the wrong side of history every single time. And these men chose politics, economics, and hatred to rule and reign in their hearts And though Sembala and Tobiah have strong religious and familial connections to the Jews, they're not concerned with what God wants. They're concerned with their position of their countries and their cities, and they're concerned with keeping the Jews subservient and their peoples in prominence. And what happens when we choose politics, economics, and hatred over what the word of God says and God's will? we eventually have no portion or claim to the kingdom of heaven. And yeah, absolutely. You know, again, it, they have these connections to Yahweh, but it's almost like they missed the whole point. You know, what, the Jews learned in exile was to follow God's law explicitly. And they come back to see that these people are not following the law of God explicitly. And in fact, coming against the law of God or the will of God. And then, but then you jump to Nehemiah four and I only skip Nehemiah three, just because it's going through these details of who did what work and where and all that. Uh, And I figure that doesn't make a good episode. So uh, you mean we're not going to do a special 12 part series on Chronicles? I'm good. <laughs> I mean, well, not the interesting part of Chronicles either. I'm talking about the first few chapters that are just names. No, <laughs> because those are the verses that I just kind of skimmed through. 
uh, I read them, <laughs> but I'm not going to sit there and go, yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's just who I am. Uh, I do I do some word studies on those names when I feel it's relevant. So <laughs> Nehemiah 4, uh, verses 1 through 3, says... Now, when Sembalat heard that they were building the wall, so they're building up this wall, uh, and Sembalat, he's hearing that, oh, oh, this is actually happening. He's angry. And he's greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he laid and said in the, sorry, and he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish it up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burn ones at that? So a little side note there, most of these stones were limestone. And once you burn limestone, it's really no good for anything. Verse 3 says, Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him. And he said, yes, what are they building? If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Essentially was saying it's good for nothing and degrading the Jews and the work that they're doing. And I think to a degree that they believe that Nehemiah would not do very much to progress the welfare of the Jews in Jerusalem. But when they found out otherwise, thought, oh, this is actually happening. And it makes him pretty angry. And as long as Jerusalem laid unprotected, the rulers should, you know, Persia, the Assyrian Empire fall. They kind of rested in this idea that that as long as it laid unprotected, that they could conquer it at any given point. And that assumption that they had was now being threatened and now being undone. However, they made a mistake. They simply ridiculed the word. They made assumptions that Nehemiah was going to be like others. He would come, look at it, leave. They just ridiculed the work. They speak against the work and think of it as foolish thinking that the wall will collapse under its own weight. And, you know, that's, I know that's weird saying like they made a mistake by doing that, but if they were actually going to stop it, they should have stopped it then, right before it ever happened, right? Uh, Yeah, I mean, speaking of it as like a tactic, from a tactical standpoint, like, that's the point to stop it if you actually really think you need to do something to stop it. Although one could also make the argument that if they would have gone in and just slaughtered Jerusalem, they would have looked like the villains. Yeah. And well, so they and- also needed they needed to kind of balance how they would look to the empire that actually ruled over them and what they could do. So, I mean, I almost can understand why the threat is their best play here. And not to mention that, you know, Artaxerxes 
stepmother was probably Esther, <laughs> right? Yeah. So, you know, it doesn't look good if you're going in there and come against Jews' words when the guy's stepmom is a Jew. Well, plus, and, if if that time frame is correct, they would have had literally a national holiday where you can try. <laughs> yeah. But uh, just so you know, their retaliation is fully legal and they can do whatever they want. Yeah. And so we go on to Nehemiah chapter four, verse four. It says here, this is Nehemiah's response. And I, I love the response, by the way. He says, hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall and the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. Nehemiah does something that most of us do not have the self-control to do during times of scorning and opposition. He prayed. And Nehemiah followed in the ways of the Proverbs. Proverbs 9, 6-8 says, Forsake the foolish and live, go in the way of understanding. He that reproveth a scorner getteth to himself shame, and he that rebuketh a wicked man getteth himself blood. Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. He's basically recognizing that these people are foolish, and they're wicked, and he's not even going to waste his time on them, so he's like, I'm just going to turn it over to God. And it's difficult not to speak up, you know, against these kinds of people because we've all been in that situation where someone is making fun of us or making fun of someone we love or someone we like. And we have this innate urge to defend ourselves, though we, you know, no matter what, right? Yeah. But, but God's people are no or should not be strangers to contempt, hatred, or scorn. God does hear the things that are said against his people and this should be our motivation to stay silent because nehemiah again I, I view this as a very measured response by sambalot and tobiah if they can get nehemiah to say the wrong thing and get word back to the king then they'd be authorized to act exactly and you know, this is where Nehemiah, you know, he turns, he, he prays that their taunts will be turned back on them. And this is kind of where I deviate a little bit. And I say, this is not a prayer. This is a spirit of prophecy that comes upon Nehemiah. And, you know, this is where Nehemiah's actions differ from what we do today as a New Testament people. We're told to pray for those, for, not against, for those who despitefully use us. Jesus even prayed for those who had crucified him. And that's why I say this is a spirit of prophecy. And the reason for Deba's spirit of prophecy is not because the opposition had come against him or the people. They had provoked God himself in the presence of the people who were working for God's will. Yeah. I also, I think though, if we really think about it, 
Jesus tells us to do good to those that hurt us. Yeah. He doesn't tell us to not anticipate bad for those that insult God. Again, and exactly. Which, yeah, I, I'm agree. I'm agreeing. I'm saying like it when you look at Nehemiah's prayer in that way, where he's more saying, you know, hear our prayer, protect us. But I am also aware, God, of what you're going to do to people who insult you. Exactly. Uh, and, so and let when, it happen. <laughs> yeah. that And that's kind of what I was getting at because yeah. it should not be lost on us that God's wrath will be poured out. And I think that that's why it, this is the difference with the Old Testament and New Testament. We see God's wrath would be poured out on these people. Whereas in the New Testament, Jesus says, you know, pray for them, you know, pray that they would get their heart right. Right. Because there will come a day where my wrath will be poured out on them. They will be in hell, all those things. The other thing to think about too, is I know it's not as clear in the text as history gives us indication that these people thought that they were following Yahweh. But if we understand the text in light of them having a sense of them following Yahweh, if they really believed that they were following God, but they were also following these pagan deities, then they were beyond turning away on some oh, level. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, like, attacking God's people and trying to destroy God's people and claiming to do it in the name of God. Yeah, I mean, you can love that person all you want, but uh, wrath is coming. I, I'm not sure that love is going to help them in that yeah. moment, and and so, you know, I just, I don't know. Well, I think there's yeah, a wrath. lot, there's a lot more love in the Old Testament than we give it credit for, and for there's sure. more wrath in the New Testament than we give it credit for. For sure, <laughs> <laughs> and you know. Either way, though, through all this, the people managed to build the wall to at least half its height because they had a mind to work. That's what Nehemiah says. And that is a mind to work in spite of opposition, in spite of scorn, and in spite of the heavy labor that this involved. And when you couple those three things together, most people in today's world would probably have left whatever work they were doing. And I know that's not the typical response you get from someone like me, but let's be honest about the world and the Christians that we have today. This, however, that scorn Isn't it like that thirty percent of pastors are atheists or something like that. I, I've heard that. I feel figure. like that was the poll. It was like thirty percent of pastors are actually secretly atheists, and they're still pastoring because what else are they supposed to do for money? They have a master's degree or a doctorate in theology and they've done nothing but christian ministry for 20 years i've heard that figure yeah um, which that's a whole which is according different... to poll but i'm saying like i i mean people are falling away and 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 the ones who fall away aren't always ones that leave they're not the ones that say they're ex-christians or ex-evangelicals or however they want to talk about themselves they're ones that 
that are still sitting in our pews, that are still in positions of ministry and authority, but just have lost the love of God and the passion for his work and are just going through the motions empty. Yeah. Left their first love. That's immediately what comes to mind. And, you know, those things that push us to that edge should actually be what emboldens us. And that's what it did to the Jews. It emboldened the Jews. It hastened their work. And seeing this, Sembalat and Tobias and the surrounding nations. So now it's not just Sembalat, Tobias, Geshem. It's all these other nations around Jerusalem. They decide to try and take action. And they conspire, if you will, against the work of God. And verse 7 says, But when Semelot and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry and they all plotted together to come against and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God. That's what verse 9 says. And we prayed to our God. And set a guard as protection against them day and night. First of all, that's that's amazing because there's confusion that they want to come in. And, you know, Nehemiah just says, and we pray to our God. God is not the author of confusion. And if you can get down on your knees and pray, a lot of that confusion oftentimes gets erased. And... Later, this comes to the ears of the people, and they rush out to Nehemiah. So this this is actually before it gets to Nehemiah. Uh, so the people pray to God. And it gets to the ears of the people, and they rush out to Nehemiah, and the workers ask ten times for Nehemiah and the workers to return to them. The people, they weren't working but they were sympathetic to the cause. They told Nehemiah about the designs of the enemy. So Nehemiah decides to pray for God's protection and places guards at the low places and in the breaches of the wall. Nehemiah 4 and 14 says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. Nehemiah calls on the people to remember how mighty God is. And to me, he's invoking something that Joshua also said, where he, right before they enter the promise, said, you know, be strong. God tells him, be strong, be courageous, meditate on my word. And Nehemiah echoes that to the people. And then he instructs them to fight. And this people is an apprehensive people that feels overwhelmed. They're seeing all these nations come out against them. They're hearing rumors that the work is too much. And they feel overwhelmed. And when we look at the culture of the world, I know we have these same apprehensions. And we feel overwhelmed. And one question that arises in my mind often, you know, uh, something that I probably don't do as often as I should, 90% of the time I'm driving down the road 
and I'm just thinking, or, you know, I got, I have a certain look, I kind of pooch my bottom lip out and that's kind of my thinking face. And a lot of times what I'm thinking of when that happens and is this, how do you raise children in this culture that bombards us with ungodliness, sexual immorality, and violence? How am I supposed to teach them what is right and wrong in the face of how loud the world is on issues like marriage, sex, abortion, you name it? Because to me, Nehemiah is invoking the same thoughts. You're looking at how great your enemy is, but remember how great your God is. The world is so loud. And uh, I had a, there's a preacher back in Mississippi where I grew up um, that he preached one of the best uh, messages I've ever heard. I believe it was titled The Widow of Tekoa. And in that message, he described how their worship leader was talking to them. And he's and the worship leader said, I don't understand how these young people keep following. I don't understand how they keep getting into you know, pornography and, you know, whatever, you didn't, booze, you know, drugs. And then he said, but then I looked around. It's in their face every day, every single day. And... That's what I, I mean think, by the world, the world being loud. Yeah, it's interesting. I think the gaps, the gaps in our world right now in our generation, they're gaps we made because we neglected the wall and we neglected it in a way that made people think that that wall was never needed because it never existed before. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and people were acting like homosexuality was a new thing. It had never happened before. And it's like, that was always a lie. It was never true. Anyone who acted like homosexuality was new in the 80s or the 70s or the 90s, that's not true. It never, ever was. Okay? And it it wasn't that they were lying on purpose, but they were definitely ignorant of history. They're ignorant of humanity and what has happened in all of history. You know, we act like this is the first generation that sex isn't in everybody's face, but like, you know, in Ephesus, the, the whole city was built around a sex cult. Yeah. Like they would get together in the center of town and have giant orgies. And that's, and again, nothing we face is new. Like, that was normal. Like it wasn't just Ephesus. It was all of these cities. Like they would go to their places of worship and it would be full of sex and violence. And again, the, it, and I, I like what you're saying because it's, we feel like we've created those gaps because where yeah. the church is silent, the world's going to fill in the gaps. Yeah. And they did. We, we made this idea that, that these things don't exist. We tried to politically destroy the existence of all of these things. And well, 
what's the quote from Jurassic Park? Nature finds a way. Nature finds a way. Nature and, found a way. And that brings me back to your point. And I, I said this earlier, but when the people returned to Judah, they met a Samaritan people that had mingled idol worship with the worship of Yahweh. And the same was happening in Egypt too. In fact, Sambalot's sons were commissioned to work on that Egyptian temple on the condition that there would be no animal sacrifices in it. So therefore no shedding of blood for the atonement of sin. And which is weird because not only would that have not, not been allowed at a temple in Egypt yeah. <laughs> by the law, but like, so like, why are you doing it? But also what's the point? Well, I have a temple if you can't, Exactly. Why have a temple based around animal sacrifice when you can't have animal sacrifice and then build it in a place where it's not allowed to go by the God that you're supposedly serving by the building of this temple? Exactly. Well, it, the devil There's has just, a, the yeah. devil tries to imitate the things of God. That, that's my opinion. And I know that's, yeah. that's some harsh statement because church people, again, that these are supposed to be people that follow Yahweh and they're creating this imitation temple. Yeah. Which, I mean, to be fair, that's what the Samaritans did before they fell the first time. Yeah, Garizim. And they were scattered originally. They built a second temple that had a whole bunch of pagan deities worshipped in it, as well as the tabernacle that they yeah. rebuilt, or they built a replica of, or whatever. And, you know, they did all the same stuff. And that's what Jesus references when he says, you'll neither worship in this mountain or at Jerusalem. But, you know. Which is interesting because Jesus is almost recognizing that they were actually worshiped. There were a portion of them that were rightfully worshiping Yahweh in that and place. I, I think that there were a few adherents, but. Well, yeah, I mean, of, if you really think about it, if they had a pagan temple, like it's it's sinful for the people to have the false gods there. But individual people, there isn't anything they can do about it. They kept their head down and they kept. They kept their head down. They did what was right. And they followed God to the best of their abilities where they were. And God probably did honor that for a portion of the people in that world. Yeah. And. But again, when you look at Egypt and you look at that, you know, you can't have animal sacrifices. Okay. Well, what are you atoning for sin? And then you have the Samaritans putting literal, and, and in fact, the Elephantine Temple was doing the same thing. They were putting pagan you know, idols right beside Yahweh in the temple. And then the Samaritans are doing the same exact thing. And what were they putting it right beside? Do we know? It was like raw. Did they you know, build? No, but I'm saying I know what I know when you build raw in a temple. I know what yeah. that looks like when you build, you know, ISIS. I know what that looks like when you build Baal. I have an idea of what that looks like. But when you say that you put raw next to Yahweh, what does that look like? Do you know in that pagan temple? Like, did they have an idol to Yahweh? No. Okay. Um, Was it like an empty spot? <laughs> 
Well, like, or do we not know enough about the temple to know what they how they did it exactly? Well, we have sources, and okay. uh, and you know I'm I'm going to say that yeah you know, it gets abandoned you know about 400 BC, so right around the time that we say God went silent, uh, which is weird, um, but. I just, the way that they did this was... They had, like, the curtain set up? Well, if you look at the images, it, it's almost like a tiny Solomon temple. Okay. So they would have had, like, the Holy of Holies with the curtains and stuff. And yeah, then they would set up put like the a, pagans. Because you've got the gate, you've got the outer court, then you've got the inner court. Okay. So I'm gonna set up like the tabernacle, okay. uh, and so like, but the problem was is that they were putting, they were putting these pagan gods in there. Yeah, and Ezra, when he comes back to Jerusalem, he rebuilds the temple, he reforms the law, he codifies, you know, he starts codifying some of those writings. And this is a threat to that temple and it gets destroyed by rioters and there's, and that's why Sembalot's sons are commissioned on it. And it just brings back though, they're missing these pagan gods. And I see in the notes that you wrote this, but it's really good. It just brings me to mind, like if the world has a, an imitation, or if the devil has an imitation of everything that God does, what gods are we setting up beside in our churches? Yeah, I struggle with that. Like, I, I definitely do because, like, the thing is, is that if we look at pagan gods and understand why ancient people look to them, right? They looked at them to fill that that hole for purpose in life that they need, that humanity needs, and they filled the hole of not having an understanding of what was happening all the time. You know, you have a god of the sun and a god of the moon because they had no idea what the sun and the moon were doing, so they called it a god because they didn't understand, right? They didn't know why the rain happened, so they called it a god. They didn't know what was in the depths of the ocean, so they called it a god. They didn't know what happened after they died, so they called it a god. And this happened in every culture, but in, in Israel, they have the one true god who you don't look to because he's the source of everything, even though he is. You look to him because he made you and loves you and wants what's best for you. Yeah. Right? And so, like, but when we look at the reason that they had these pagan gods, what do we have in our life that gives us purpose? What do we have in our world that gives up people meaning? What do we have in our world that gives people identity? How do people identify with the people around them in the modern world? Because, I, I mean, they didn't well, have the a Twitter. cult of 
they didn't have the cult of the moon god that feuded with the cult of the sun god in the town next door because they actually thought the sun and the moon was more important than each other. It was because the one town had the temple to the sun god and the other town had the temple to the moon god and they grew up going to that temple and so they were loyal to their hometowns. Sound familiar? Uh I mean, yeah, I know. I, I'm messing with myself here. Like, I, I, I understand. I, I trust me. I understand what I'm saying, and I get the, I get the windmills that I'm tilting, and I understand the the ramifications of the things I'm saying, and I don't know where to go with it, and I don't know if we have to take it that far. Like, oh, but but you're you're entirely right. I mean, but I, yeah, like it's like it's like where do we need to go with this stuff? Like, is it wrong? to be a fan of a sports team. Is it wrong that I love the Packers and you love the 49ers? And it, it's something that we identify with. It's literally a basis of who we are. Oh, well, I, mean, I live in Wisconsin, man. It's been, it was born and bred into me. Yeah. I mean, and I see the same thing with Bulldogs down here, but yeah, I mean, it, it just raises so many questions. And, you know, you said that, what do people identify with today? And, you know, most people today, like you said, back then would have identified, well, I live from this city, I worship, you know, Artemis or whatever. And, but I don't think you have to look very, look at Twitter. Look at Facebook, look at Instagram. You'll immediately see where people identify themselves politically and socially for that matter comedically whatever you know we have a people today that are so divided by politics and entertainment and culture and you name it right you know i'm i'm tired of having a church that thinks that we can afford to be divided and serving i mean let me put it this way not divided maybe serving is a better term we can't afford to have a church that serves politics, economics, entertainment, and contemporary culture. Because let's face it, like we, in the American church today, we have a church that is so deep into politics that I don't know if we can find our way out of it. Yeah. And I'm not meaning that to throw darts at one side or the other. I'm saying that as someone who wants people to follow God and God alone and serve God and God alone and look to him for answers. Some of us are so deep into politics that it is blocking our revelation of God as King of Kings. We would rather serve our politician than we would rather serve the God of heaven and earth i'm sorry that's just where some people are at and i see it every day you might get offended and turn this off but i'm going to stand my ground on that because i have multiple case in point pieces of evidence for it and be careful you know what they call people who have evidence oh my bad (laughs) i think it just got us in more trouble doesn't matter yeah, my bad. It's my job. <laughs> but, I mean, this is one point where I'm going to be like, eh, he said what he said. Yeah. 
Because, but if this is the path that we're going to choose for the American church, we'll raise a generation of men and women who were unfamiliar with doctrine and yeah. a generation of men and women who had to fill in the gaps by the world rather than by God. Yep. And you can say, well, my religion doesn't believe in abortion, or my politician doesn't believe in abortion. Okay, but does he believe in making sure that the poor are fed? Because that's a biblical standard as well. Republicans don't do that. Do we ad- do we advocate do we advocate for the unborn and those who are actively living? And we'll get into that one next week, by the way. Just a little snippet there. But and then you can say, well, my politician believes in you know making sure everyone is fed and you know is paid right and all those things okay but do they hold to biblical standards of marriage and the sanctity of life amen i'm going to throw darts at both sides here i don't care yeah because i've reached a point that i'm sick and tired of Christianity in America being hijacked by and used and twisted by politicians, by entertainment, by pop culture, by economics. If you are blessed, if you are economically blessed, you were not blessed so that you can have a great, marvelous life. You were blessed to give. Amen. And Paul says as much. I believe it. he says it in either First Timothy or maybe Titus, where he actually instructs the rich to give and to be liberal with their wealth and not withhold from a brother that's within need. Yep. And, and if a brother needs, give. And if you can't give, lend. And if you do lend, don't charge him interest. And don't, and Jesus, I believe, said, so don't really. If you lend, and if you lend and he can't pay you back, forgive. Exactly. But what ends up happening is we get the people who have no faith, they have no hope, and they don't even, and, you know, Paul said they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. But eventually you get to a point where you call yourself a Christian and you don't even look like God. And we cannot do it. We cannot allow it. Because yes, the world is loud. Yes, it seems that politics has overtaken the Western church, and it has, let's be honest. Yes, it seems that every day we have churches that bow to culture more and more and more. But we've got to be that guard. It said Nehemiah put guards in the low spots and in the breaches of the wall. We've got to be there. We've got to have the faith to pray to God for protection and stand against what this world is throwing at us and at our children because it's not going to stop. Because we're not just teaching, living, and building this doctrine, faith, and church for us. We're not just building these things for us. We are going to leave them to our children. And if we're not standing guard in those low places and filling in those gaps, the world and Satan will find their way in. I believe God told Abel, sin lies at the door. 
I believe is what he said. You know, we finished up Ephesians, which is a great series, by the way. Identity, you know, that that was the Identity Crisis, and then Ephesians was an amazing series. But Paul wrote to the Ephesians in chapter 6, verse 10. He says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Sambalat and Tobiah came against the work of God. They sought to put into confusion, chaos, disarray, and they wanted to discourage the people of God. And that is absolutely no different from our enemy today. It says that spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places that means the expanse between earth and heaven. Why? Because for the same reasons that Sembalat and Tobiah opposed Ju- Judah in Jerusalem, those wicked spirits want to keep us from our callings, our destinies, and our blessings, and our inheritance in Christ. So be strong and courageous. Stop allowing the enemy to provoke you because what the enemy is really doing is provoking God. Mm-hmm. The enemy is coming against the good work of God in our lives. But, but the greater shame is when we don't even try to keep it from happening. We don't try to defend against it. And that's where the real danger is because it is in those gaps and in those low spots of defense that the enemy will attack. And often those low spots are the weak ones in Christ. They're our children. It's where we chose to ignore doctrine and listen to culture. It's when we chose to walk in the way of the scorner. It's when we chose to spend time responding to our enemies rather than allowing God to have his way and seek his direction. Yeah. I mean, that makes me think like, what are the things that are provoking us? Because it's, it's interesting in that, the battle is not about necessarily winning because it's already won. You know, the devil's just it, wanting to carry everyone it, with him. It kind of makes me think of like World War II, right? The Japanese knew they were going to lose on some level, like portions of them did. That's why they did some of the things they did. Yeah. Like they knew that they weren't getting out, they knew that certain items were not getting out. That's where we so, know kamikaze. Yeah, so they did things like they made kamikaze pilots where they would just fly their planes into things. Yep. Not that they thought that they as a nation were going to lose the war, but that they knew that things were expendable because they could do more damage by strategically destroying things and sacrificing themselves to make damage to the enemy. Well, here's the thing. Our enemy knows he's losing. He knows he lost. Like, that's the thing that doesn't make sense to me in the way that we portray the devil all the time. We act like he's this devious genius or something. And like... The game plan hasn't changed. The game plan hasn't changed, but he still knows he's losing. Like, we just said that we... He doesn't need to win. He just wants to destroy you. That's why he's called the devil, the adversary, what's about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Yeah. So if he can provoke you and cause you to do bad, you know, it makes me think of, you know, I heard about a pastor that got up in his pulpit and he said that all gay people should be shot in the back of the head. 
Come on. In his Sunday morning sermon. Like, seriously, guys. In no way, shape, or form did Jesus ever say anything along the lines of we should take people who do any sin, line them up, and execute them. That's not a thing. And if you're advocating for that, get off our podcast now, please. <laughs> like, I'm just saying, like, what provokes you? Because here's the thing. If the devil can take something and he can put it in front of your face and he can make you lose your witness, lose your testimony and lose your good name by you becoming the bad things that you should be speaking against, then he won. Even if you come out with more money and more power and you get a bigger name and you have a bigger congregation and you have people following you now and you seem to have gotten ahead on this earth in whatever measure that you're measuring your supposed victory if you stoop to their level they won so i won't that brings to mind something that i studied while i was doing this i didn't add it into the notes but now that you're mentioning this it fits perfectly First Peter 3 says, 3 and 14, I think I'm going to start at 14, says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame for it is to better, for it is better to suffer for doing good. If that should be God's will than for doing evil. Yes. And our, our words, our actions, our names, everything we do should be beyond reproach. If we are doing right, then even people who criticize us, and people who hate us will hear those criticisms and be and like, what are you talking about? And say, that's the reason. Like, you know, you know why so many people, you talked about it's evangelical. You know why so many people walk away from evangelicalism? It's because of stupid stuff like that. Yeah. They stand up we, and they say, that's the reason. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I try not to. I've gotten, I got down a rabbit hole earlier today in some of these stories and they're just they're they're saying stuff and it's like it's stuff i've heard you know like somebody was up for a pastor job and they didn't get it because their 13 year old kid had done gymnastics when they were like four years in the past and their social media had a picture of their daughter in a leotard at like 10 years in the past and so they got passed over for the job. And it's like stuff like this that we do and we say, and, and I'm not saying this as a pastor or as a bishop or as a head of anything. I'm just saying it as like somebody who's had people say awful things to me for dumb reasons and someone who by all counts should not be living for God. Because when I see people who tell stories that are like mine, they're not in church anymore yeah. because they couldn't get past the hurt. Okay. Hurt, and the reality is hurt people hurt people. Yeah. And, and the thing is, is that we give people every reason to hate God. And that is not 
godly. That is literally antichrist. When, when somebody can take our actions and actually give a coherent reason to hate the church because of things we do, we're doing it wrong. You know, that, that brings to mind first Peter two and nine. Uh, we put out a, it's been several months back at this point, but we put out a, uh, uh, a scripture, a picture where we had broken down first Peter two and nine, and I'll, I'll probably reshare it uh, with this episode, but first Peter two and nine says, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people. Chosen generation, that word generation, obviously you know what chosen means, but in Greek, generation means offspring or diversity. The body is fitly joined together because of how diverse we are, our gifts, our talents, our callings. A royal priesthood. We are called to intercede for others. A holy nation, a people that is set apart, a people that not not because they want to look different, but because they are set apart for God, not for looking different. A peculiar people, a people purchased with Christ's blood, God's own possession. But then it goes on to say that you might show forth the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. To show forth the praises, that isn't just calling you to be thankful and to be, you know, worry, all those. That is calling you to a life of service. That you might show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness, that eternal separation, that, that sinful way into his marvelous light. John describes that light as the, as the life of men. And if we are truly a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, we better start actually living a life of service and start acting like it. We better start being the offspring of Christ. We, we better start imitating him and seeking mercy, truth, and grace. We better start interceding for others. We, our children, we better start interceding for our children and asking God to deal with the hearts of our enemies and turn them to him. We better choose to be a people that is set apart for God. We better choose to start to, 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 to start. We better choose to be the people that were purchased with Christ's blood and sacrifice. Because if we don't, the world will step in. It will define marriage for our children. It will define right and wrong for our children. It will twist the gospel into a tool of politics, which it was never meant to be. And I'm tired of hearing about how we are a chosen generation and set apart a royal priesthood, a holy nation, because frankly, some of us are not living it. That sounds good on paper. That sounds great when you're reading it from a pulpit, but the fact is that is that's not just that's not just descriptors that is call to action first peter 2 and 9 i used to read it and i was like that that hops me up every time but when i really broke it down i was like that is a call to action from peter yeah because the he's preaching... not just telling them how awesome they are yeah and verse 10 <laughs> but actually... that's how we read it we read it like 
wow, I'm royal. I'm chosen. I'm set apart. I'm special. Exactly. And when you, when you think of verse 10 saying, which in times past were not a people. He's presenting this to people who were literal pagans. People who knew what it was like to go to the temple of Artemis. People who knew what it was like to go to the pagan god's temple. And he's saying, in times past you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. A people who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Yeah. Guys, we, we've got to get this back on track. Because we got to start doing it. we got to start being it. We've got to start living it. Our enemy is not flesh and blood. And we don't see an entire army coming out against us. But there is an enemy that, it, that can be pretty subtle. He can be pretty cunning. And there's a lot of legions of demons that are underneath him. However, be encouraged. Because Satan doesn't even have control of the place that he's assigned to. This is a, and we named this series Holy Ambition, but this is a holy ambition that we have to take up. We have to get a mind to work because we cannot allow the strategies of the world and Satan to, de to define for us what God has already put in order. Satan is about undoing the order. We talked about at the beginning of the year in January, creation in the beginning, that series is great. We talked about in the beginning how God put all this stuff into order and he perfectly ordered the, the cosmos and the universe and people and how he wanted things to go. We talked about how he, he formed Adam and, and made Adam a, a son of God. And then we talked about how, well, Adam fell. So he, he tried to start over afresh with Noah, but then it went back into the same cycle. So at Babel, he disinherited the entire earth and salt Abram. God has order. He's already put all these things in order, and Satan's main goal is to create chaos, to divide, to destroy, and we are allowing it. Why? Because we're not filling in the gaps. Yeah. There's a reason that God told the people, teach your children the Shema. Tell them, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall serve the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There's a reason that Paul urged Timothy to not stand to, to stand against false doctrine. There's a reason that we place importance on the teaching, the teached word of God. Because if we do not understand it, we will not be able to recognize when the world or false doctrine has entered in. Fill in the gaps. Do not let the enemy in the world define sin, doctrine, and God, for you are your children. Because 2 Timothy 3 and 9 says that, 3 and 1 through 9 says this. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times difficulty, for people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. First of all, I love that 
ungrateful and I don't love it, but ungrateful and unholy because the progression from ungrateful turns to unholy. When you become unthankful, look out because your your set apartness, your thankfulness toward God makes you unholy. Because he said, enter into my greatness with thanksgiving, into my course with praise. You can't get it get to the inner court that that pure worship, that change of heart, that that time with God without entering with some things. Verse three says, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power thereof. Avoid such people. Paul instructs Timothy, avoid these people. And then in verse six, he says, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So he said, look, these people, they're able to capture weak women and they're able to capture people who are burdened with sins and led astray by their passion, just as Demas was. He left Paul to go to Thessalonica because he was in love with the present world. Verse eight, he goes on to say, just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. You know, so I, I looked up that silly women thing. I was curious because silly just I was like or why weak women it's silly in the King King James and I was just like what is that like why why would Paul say that like where does that come from and it's interesting because it's a word that's only used one time okay and the King James always said silly so like it was like almost an insult to women like it was like but what it is is that it's it's a it's a word that it's kind of negative, but it really just means little. So the suffix, the, the first part is just woman, women. And the second part is uh, a suffix that makes it mean smaller or younger or little. Okay. And it's just interesting because the burden with sins and led astray by various passions, it, to me, it speaks as if they creep into the households and they capture and they seek out the younger women. And, and he's not saying it as if it's negative. He's saying it because they're the target. And I look at our culture and it's, it's interesting because so much of what's happening in our culture is because of that aim at women. Um, earlier today, I was reading a thing about how there's a problem with sexual purity and sexual function, I guess, in the church in that they're finding that, great, did you know that like 30% of men are getting to, you know, their late 20s and 30 being virgins? Sounds good on the... On it the sounds front. good, but here's the problem. They're only getting there because they can't find women who will date them at all. And the thing is, is what they're finding when they're looking at the cultures of the churches is they're not 
not able to find dates because they're not attractive men they're because they don't have good jobs because they don't have money it's because our culture has targeted women and so they all think that they all deserve the hottest guy and that's it and so what they're finding is that the women are seeking the women are holding off on marriage, they're ending up being more promiscuous than in the past, but they're passing over huge portions of the male population. And this is causing power dynamic issues in our whole culture, especially in the church. And not just this, but there's this is a, a, an added evidence of it, right? And so it's like, we look at all these ancient societies and we see this imbalance of men and women in the culture and it affects so many different places in ancient cultures, you know, and it's happening in the world today too. The balance of the home, the balance of men and women in the home and relating to each other is getting out of whack. And it's not that one is more valuable than the other. And I'm not saying like the patriarchy is awesome. I know there's people listening to this who are going to think I'm awful for even saying that mockingly, but I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying is, is that we need to have a proper understanding of the role of men and the role of women. And it's interesting to me that Paul is saying that in the last days, all of these bad things would happen and that we should avoid the people who have all these things that avoid the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, avoid those people because with those sins come people who seek out the women in your culture and burden them with sin, burden them with all of the bads that are happening and lead them astray with the things that they want and can't have. And what I find interesting is verse seven says they're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. So yeah. they're always learning, but it's not truth. Yeah. And they're always seeking what they need and what they want, but it's never getting to what they need because they're looking in all the wrong places. And it made me think of like the, the verses about headship and Corinthians and stuff like, and it made me think about, and I know, you know, again, we're not getting quite in the Bible when we say this, but like, if man is the head, maybe women are the heart of the home. Neck, heart, same. Well, yeah, I, I know people say neck, but when they say that, they say it like jokingly, like, yeah, you know, I mean, realistically, probably the heart, but yeah, like the heart, because like, it's what women do in the home is so important for future generations, for society forever to exist. And it's not, and I'm not saying that, you know, women can't have careers or that, you know, every home has to look exactly the same or anything like that. I get it. I'm not saying that every single home needs to be a carbon copy of every other home. There's different ways that we can make this work. And and understanding that is important, but Understanding what the base is, is important. And we're losing sight of that because we do not have our walls properly built and we do not have them properly manned. And we are allowing things in the holes in the wall 
and they're weakening us from the inside out. And I think that what's worse is that, you know, these people can be baptized, born again, Holy Ghost filled Christians and deny the practical power of it by not living it and teaching it. Yeah. And that's and, exactly what's happening. And you know, verse 10 of first Timothy three actually goes on to say, he, he addresses Timothy directly. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my, cur- my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impo- imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you, whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings and which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I, going back to your idea of, you know, the the woman, the weak women, the the young women. Paul actually tells Timothy that you learned it from your mother and your grandmother. You know, I believe part of why this culture targets young women so much is one. If they can get to them early, they can manipulate them. But two, if you get to them that early, the later years of their life, you can really imbalance the home that they create. And I I love that when you get down to verse 17, Paul is saying scripture is useful for teaching. What have we been talking about? Fill in the gaps. Teach your children for reproof, for correction, for training, that the man of God may be complete or mature. That's what that word usually means in the Greek, perfect or mature. That's usually how we can translate that. Mature, equipped for every good work. And that's why we got to be wise. We, that's why we got to be vigilant. We must be sober. We must know the scriptures because Satan, as I often say, could be a pretty good Bible quizzer. And we must know that. We must teach that. We must live it. And what we implore you to do, whether you're man, woman, whatever, fill in the gaps. Stop, stop allowing the world to constantly define what God is or who God is or what makes a woman or what makes a man or what makes a marriage. I implore you, fill in the gaps with scripture. Fill in the gaps with church. Fill in the gaps with prayer. Fill in the gaps with the truth of Jesus Christ. And 
you know, I had this in my notes and I took it out, but I feel it's pretty relevant. What is the difference between a wall that's meant for protection and a wall that's meant for imprisonment? How much? The gates. You have one way in, one way out, and a wall meant for imprisonment. A wall meant for protection, you have gates. One at the north end usually, one at the south end, one at the west end, one at the east end. And at those gates, you have what? Guards. You have people monitoring what's coming in, what's coming out. Guys, the walls that we're building are walls of truth that will guard against. The people we're placing at the gates, those are people that should be trusted to monitor, hey, what are, you are the gatekeeper of your home. Monitor what's going in and going out. But furthermore, think about the gospel as a whole, the, the church as a whole. We're building walls of protection. And the reason we have gates at every end is because this is for everybody from the north, the south, the east, the west. It's for every single person. We're not building this so that we can imprison people. We're building this so that we can make people free. Because whom the sun sets free is free indeed. If we're using our walls to keep people shut in, to keep people in prison, to keep people bound, we're not preaching the gospel. We're preaching we're preaching something that is so foreign to the gospel. Well, yeah, and it's kind of like separation. If we're talking about separation and we're talking about being separated from anything, we're missing the point. God calls, us, God calls us to be separated to him, not from anything. We should be trying to take everything with us. So we don't want to be separate from because we want them come and win. Yeah. You know, and I, I know that we're doing this podcast and we've gotten some criticism about the way we approach things. <laughs> but if you leave this episode and think that we're, you know, just out to get everybody and destroy everything i don't know what to tell you because what we're really trying to do here is fill in the gaps i want there to be a healthy church for my daughters exactly when they turn when they grow up and they get married i want them to get married in an apostolic church to an apostolic man and live a life for god and I want them to be able to teach their kids in a healthy environment, in an environment where they're not constantly risking being abused by leadership, where they're not constantly at risk, where we aren't having scandals 
in our movement, and I know we haven't had a big one yet, and I pray we never do, but it shouldn't take big scandals to realize that some of these things are wrong. You know, it shouldn't take all of these things. If we were really living for God, we would have had that in the first place. And the thing is, is that I want them to grow up in a church that was healthier than the one that I grew up in. And I want them to lead a church that's healthier than the one that I have led. Not necessarily because either of them are wrong inherently, but because I want better for them. And that's why you build a wall. Exactly. Because, because when you have a wall, they can focus on making things better because they don't have to live in fear anymore. They don't have to worry about that was exactly why these people were coming against Nehemiah. They knew as long as Jerusalem was defenseless, they could overcome it. But the second they start building walls, filling in gaps and standing guard, they're, they're now defended. They're strong. They're united. The world wants us to be defenseless. They want our walls down. They want, they want us to stop filling in gaps. And then they want to come in and they want to fill in those gaps with soldiers, with demonic forces, with, with false prophets with politics with entertainment with with culture they want to tell us that having one door makes us safe instead of makes us imprisoned yeah uh we gotta fill in the gaps yeah And next week, we'll talk about more of about the oppression of Jerusalem and the people and Nehemiah's reforms and what he did. But we want a healthy church because hurt people hurt people. And we can't effectively minister to those who are oppressed without getting healthy ourselves first. Build the walls, fill in the gaps. We'll see y'all next week.